Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about the Scottish food and drink scene. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and on this episode, I find out more about the Scotchmore Whiskey Society, its history and a recent global tasting event. December 1992, I walked up those steps for the first time in my life and uh, picked up my, all my stuff, and my, my letter, invitation letter signed by Pip Hills. Uh, thank you for joining Olaf and to hear that. I uh, actually had no address on it because they didn't put it on because I said I collected, so I never know which address I actually gave. Uh, so that's how keen I was to get whiskey from the Scotch Bowl Whiskey Society. I can tell you, after the fifth whiskey, every whiskey is good. Uh, so therefore, make sure, use the spittoon. That's Olaf, one of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society's members, who was leading a tasting session for a group of his very fortunate peers who recently came to Edinburgh from all across the world, courtesy of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, to celebrate whiskey, to help choose their bottlings for this year and to mark the 40th anniversary of the founding of the Society by Pip Hills. I'm delighted to say I had the opportunity to sit down with Pip, this wonderful raconteur, and hear from him just how the Society came about the challenges and triumphs he faced over the years and what he thinks of the industry today. The practice of a lot of people of buying whisky casks as an investment I find perfectly deplorable. I think the essence of Scotch whisky is that people should enjoy it and have a great time and it's about it's about the expansiveness of human nature. And nothing could be less expansive than grubby people buying casks merely so that they can get a bit richer than they are at the moment. First up, I chatted to Andrew Dane, the new CEO of the Society, about what was going on and the celebrations that are taking place. You'll also hear from some of the lucky members who won a trip to be part of the whisky tasting that will inform the next bottling the Society undertakes. I'm now joined by Andrew Dean, who's the CEO of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. Hi, Andrew. Hello, how are you today? Good, how are you? Very good, thank you. Enjoying a day with members from around the world, enjoying some great whiskies. So could you just tell us a little bit about what's going on today? Absolutely. So it's a chance for members who have been successful uh, as part of a campaign around the world to come and join us to be part of a tasting experience. So our casks are all selected and go through a tasting panel experience before they're bottled and released to members around the world. Well, this is a chance for our members to be a direct part of that story. So they're here experiencing it like members of the tasting panel, trying a range of whiskies and saying what they think of it. And then eventually that will be bottled for a member's release, is that right? That's correct. So as part of our gathering, which is our um, annual birthday celebration in September of each year. 
uh, these bottles will be released to those members around the world as special releases with history and tasting notes chosen by members themselves. It's the 40th anniversary this year, um, so what are, the, what are the plans? So since the Society was founded in 1983, we've been bringing great whiskies to the world and that's what this year is all about. So today's campaign is a chance to get members to be part of that and make the September gathering a real special event. Alongside that, we've got some fantastic products being released. So uh, not sure how many of these I'm allowed to talk about, but some real special treats, including a 40-year-old whiskey to come out later this year. As well as that, we've got some brilliant campaigns and ideas of ways to engage with what's now over 37,000 members around the world and make them feel like part of one community. So that is a key part of what the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is about. It's both the wonderful whiskey and the members' experiences and them enjoying it together. So our 40th year is about combining those two on a grand scale. So that's what you'll see throughout the year. We're making the most of our 40th year. So it's not just one little bang, it's a whole year of celebration. As you should, not every day you turn 40. Indeed, indeed. So we were really, uh, really making the most of it. And first out the bat is a product called the Maverick. It captures the fact that when the society was founded 40 years ago, it was a real maverick attitude by Pip Hills, the founder who's here with us today, who wanted to take an unconventional approach. And we've continued to do that for 40 years. And this bottle is uh, a celebration of that element of the society. So that's the first up. Well, thank you very much for your time and happy birthday to the society. And we hope you have a great year. Thank you very much, I'm sure we will, and I hope this is, the members enjoy it too. My name is Samantha, and I'm originally from South Africa, and I now live in London. And how excited were you when you found out you'd won this competition? I was really thrilled. I had to read the email twice because actually I'd forgotten that I'd entered, um, and so it was a really welcome surprise at the end of the year. So how long have you been a member? I've been a member three years. And what do you like about it? Well, first and foremost, the whiskey, which is always great. Uh, but we have a really lovely, friendly members' lounge at Greville Street. And it's just a really lovely place to try new things, meet new people, and, yeah, go for a quiet dram. So what first got you interested in whiskey? Well, to be honest, I didn't used to drink whiskey. It wasn't something that I, was, I thought I'd be interested in, but I was quite interested in wine. And I suppose it's a bit of a gateway from there. And I bought my husband a bottle of whiskey, had a taste of it. It was a Macallan 15, and I thought, hmm, I could get into this. And here we are. <laughs> and how do you feel going from, obviously, single malt, 40-odd percent, to cask strength? How, how was that transition? Oh, um, I think initially a bit of a shock, but uh, it's been really interesting to try. And, you know, you can water it down, but I think there's so much complexity in all of the drums. So, yeah, with the cask strength, maybe there's a little bit more power, a little bit more intrigue there. But I think there's a time and a place for 46% cask strength. They're all pretty good. And what brought you to the Scotch Whiskey Society in the first place? Well, we'd been on holiday in Scotland the year before we moved to the UK, uh, to London, and we went to Queen Street and decided that we'd taste a few whiskies there, and it was such a lovely experience, and we knew that there was a members' lounge in London, and decided that as soon as we moved, we were going to join, so we did. What's your favourite whisky? Too difficult to answer. Um, <laughs> I have lots of distilleries that I like. Love Klein Leash. Uh, Isla Whiskies, always um, really lovely. But yeah, let's go with Klein Leash. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Andrew Bissom, Southern California. How did you feel when you found out you'd won this competition? <laughs> to be honest, surprised and then also wondering if, if this was legit. <laughs> um, so how did you get into whiskey? Believe it or not, my daughter. My daughter lives in New York and uh, uh, she had gotten into whiskey before I did and she introduced me to it maybe about 10 years ago. Um, and do you have a favorite distillery or kind of expression? Well, it's, it's like trying to, uh, it's like trying to name your favorite child. <laughs> um, a lot of it depends on the mood I'm in. I mean, I love uh, single malts. I also, uh, bourbons, rye, um, international um, whiskeys. Uh, I'm, I, I'm a fan of all of the brown spirits. <laughs> and what do you enjoy about this society? Everything. Uh, it's really spoiled me. Um, you know, it's, it's the best uh, single malt whiskey I, I've had. I mean, the fact that it's, it's cast strength, it's, it's non-chill filter. Um, it introduces me to a lot of distilleries that I would not normally have an opportunity. You know, a lot of distilleries, you know, are, are, are distilled just for blends. So it's introduced me to a lot of distilleries I've, I've never heard of before and I wouldn't ordinarily have an opportunity. Can you tell us a bit about the events that you went to in America? They're a lot of fun. Um, we'll, they'll, they, they have them at a, at a restaurant, usually at a, at a place called the, the Tam O'Shanter in Los Angeles. And uh, um, they'll do uh, samplings of, or tastings of, of six uh, different whiskeys, plus a, a welcome sample. Uh, so you can imagine what that's like. I make sure I, I never drive when I'm going there. I Uber, and uh, it, it's a it's a great way to to try them, to to, to taste them before I, I I make a purchase. It's also a great way to meet other uh, fans of whiskey, um, people from all over Southern California. And have you travelled to distilleries in Scotland quite a bit? I have on this trip. <laughs> uh, we got in early and stayed in uh, three days in Glasgow, and then we uh, traveled up to Isla, visited quite a few distilleries on Isla, and then from there we made our way to Speyside, a few more distilleries, and now here. So, and not just in Scotland. Um, my wife and I, when we travel, uh, if there's a distillery, uh, we, we'll try to visit it. I mean, in October, uh, I, we were in Reykjavik, and there's a distillery uh, there. Uh, a few years ago, we were in a distillery, Milk and Honey, in Tel Aviv. You know, areas that you would not normally uh, think of as, as uh, makers of whiskey. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. I'm now joined by Pip Hills, who is the founder of the Scotch Mobisca Society. Hi Pip, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. So, for anyone that doesn't know the story, and apologies if you talk about this all the time, but how did it all come about? Oh, well, um, it, it all started, I, I had got inkling of how good malt whiskey could be, because an old friend of mine, um, had a, a neighbour who bought his whiskey by the cask. For some reason, it tasted better than the same stuff out of a bottle. 
and I had found a syndicate of my friends to buy whiskey in the cask, and it was a huge success, and people kept asking to join the syndicate. We used to meet in my house in Scotland Street and divvy up casks, and um, there was clearly a demand for whiskey in this curious condition, because it simply tasted better than the same stuff out of a proprietary bottle. And the demand was such that I said to the members of the syndicate, look guys, there has got to be a market for this. If we, if we were to make this available to the public, we wouldn't need to advertise or anything like that. We just have to let people know that we had it and they would come flocking as they are already flocking. And it turned out there were two main reasons why the whiskey tasted so good. Because we were taking it at full strength, which is about 60% alcohol. Whiskey is generally sold at 40% by volume. Um, because we were taking it and diluting it in the glass before we drank it, it meant that it didn't have to be chill-filtered, which is a process which the whisky industry generally uses to make sure there is no cloudiness in the bottle, which also removes some of the flavour. And um, it's a long story, but all my friends said, well, if you can figure out a way to do it, then we'll all chip in as part of a company. So I applied to the registrar of companies for the... Uh, company whose title was the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society Limited and um, the registrar after making one or two inquiries saying why should you get such a grand title and I said well we are a malt whiskey society because my pals all meet in my house and to the best of my knowledge there isn't another one so and the registrar said fair enough and let us have the rather grand title. Um, so what we did was we we bought four casks of whiskey. We found our company and we each chipped in some cash, not a lot of cash for the capital. And we bought four casks of whiskey and we let everybody, we bottled the whiskey and we bottled it all at full strength without chill filtering it. And we simply let it be known that we had this stuff. And people came to our door and said, please, can we get it? And they gave drums to their friends, and the drums friends all said, this is absolutely wonderful stuff. Where can we get some? And they would say, well, you've got to get it from this outfit down in Leith. Around about the same time, um, when I was thinking of the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, I thought we would need some decent premises in which to do it. And by that time, property price, and we're talking about in 1983 now, property prices were already too high in the city centre for us to get anywhere suitable. But in Leith, Leith at the time was still smoky and horrible and very dirty and property was cheap. But I'd always admired what was one of the grandest wine warehouses in Leith, which was the vault. And I knew nothing about it, except that it was very grand with a high wall round the front of it. So I walked up the steps outside, which you came up, um, and asked for the receptionist said, "What could you do do for me?" And I said, "Well, I'm looking for a building." <clears throat> and she said, "You better speak to one of our directors," and brought a very nice man called John Walters, and he said, 
what could he do for me? And I said, well, I'm looking, I've got this idea for a whiskey company and I'm looking for a really nice building to do it in. And this would suit me fine. You wouldn't think of selling it, would you? And he said, well, he said, you've certainly chosen an opportune moment because this company, which is now, is the oldest wine merchants in Scotland, J.G. Thompson and Company, had been in existence since 1705. We're moving out to modern premises, which will be much more convenient. And he said, and I'm sure if you made the directors a sensible offer, they would be happy to sell it to you. So I got together some more of my chumps. Five of us came together and put up £10,000 apiece and bought the whole thing for £50,000. It turned out to be a disastrous speculation because restoring a four-storey ancient wine warehouse was a very, very expensive matter. However, we established the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society there in 1983, and it's been here ever since. And at the time, I mean, obviously things have changed drastically. When it comes to buying casks at the time, was that quite straightforward? Because you sort of... Oh, it was unheard of. Yeah. The public didn't buy whiskey casks. Nobody's ever heard of anybody doing that. It had been reasonably common practice 100 or 150 years ago, but was not in 1983. Yeah. So was it as simple as you just, you had money and you went to distillery and said, can I buy a cask? And they were like, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, the Scotch whisky industry, which tends to go on a cycle of, of prosperity and recession, and it was in recession at the time. The 1980s were a very bad time for the Scotch whisky industry. Sales were falling. Nobody knew what to do about it. There were no new ideas. It was very, very boring. Everybody thought Scotch whisky was really boring, not in the least interesting. And so people were stopping drinking it. And nobody in the whisky industry knew what to do about it. With a few honourable exceptions, there were people like McCallan who, and, and Glenn Fartas who understood the importance of the cask maturation and who were maturing their whisky in first-class casks and and selling it to the public. But um, those people were very few and far between. There was whisky lying about in warehouses all over the place, and the distillers were more than happy to get rid of it. And we didn't. All we had to pay for, we didn't have to pay for the excellence of the whisky. All we paid for was the alcohol, just so they could get it out of their warehouses. This, the sort of casks that now are changing money for insane prices we were just but all we bought was we bought alcohol at so much per litre of pure alcohol per year of maturation. The quality of the cask was of very little interest. Again, as I said, apart from a few very discerning distillers. We just set up shop here. We had a wonderful lady called Anne Dana, who still lives in Leith, who ran it for, I think, the first seven years. And she and her friend were running the company from this room, and there was a hole in that corner where the dust from the building works were coming up from underneath, and people were coming in, and she was, she was selling them bottles of whiskey, and everybody thought it was wonderful. And what's now our grand member's room next door was J.G. Thompson's general office. I've got a photograph somewhere of my little daughter who is 
was at the time about six playing at offices at one of the desks. But it's a marvellous building. It's called the vaults because underneath it are four great barrel-ceilinged vaults, which date almost certainly from the 14th century. It may well have been a monastic institution because the, the monks at Newbattle were <coughs> mining coal and they were bringing the coal on sledges because in the 14th century there were no roads in Scotland capable of taking wheeled vehicles. And they brought it on sledges and they dropped it at the bottom of the street. And if you go down the street there to where the water of Leith flows, you will notice that it has a strange street name. It's called Coal Hill because for 500 years there was a pile of coal there. And ships came from Bordeaux bringing claret, because of course the Scottish upper classes and the middle classes drank claret from Bordeaux. And they brought claret and they took coal back as their return cargo. And the casks were unloaded at the bottom of the street there, rolled up the hill and put into the vaults underneath us. And they are still there, great barrel ceiling vaults which hang with black fungus, which was brought on the castles from Bordeaux. If everything was in decline and you guys were on the up and obviously there was there was appetite for what you were doing, you obviously weren't, weren't very well thought of within... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can safely claim to have been the most hated man in the whole of the Scotch whisky industry. They loathed it. They were We were doing something which their system of beliefs said couldn't be done. Whisky could not be marketed that. And it wasn't just that we were selling this fabulous whisky, but we made it interesting. Whisky was really boring. It was all kilts and tartans and haggises, and there was nothing interesting in what we did. The other thing we did was we applied wine tasters' techniques and terminology to whisky and Possibly the most revolutionary thing of all was that we said, look, this stuff is full of exotic flavour and ordinary people are perfectly well equipped to discern this flavour. Then whisky blending and so on was thought to be some mysterious arcane process that only the initiated could have any entry to. And the public was not encouraged to take an interest. The, the, the marketing was all in terms of whisky brands, and the less the public knew about what went into them, the better. And we were saying, look, it's actually interesting. Once you've actually, there are techniques that anyone can acquire, and once you've acquired them, you will find that this is wonderful stuff. It's not boring at all. And also we did it with a certain panache, we had a whole lot of fun doing it, and curiously, it was it was my sister, who's a very smart lady, my younger sister, she's old now, like me, but it was just a few weeks ago we were talking about it, and she, she said, she said, yeah, she said, what you did was to make whiskey cool. At a time when it just wasn't cool. I mean, a more uncool thing than whisky 40 years, it was very hard to imagine. It was the sort of thing that old men drank in golf clubs. Mm. Um, I've nothing against golf clubs, 
I'm sure they're perfectly respectable places. Golf clubs are not what you would think of as in terms of Paul Newman or something like that. And when we took it to the United States, the Americans understood instantly. They latched onto the idea very quickly because whiskey had long been big in the US and they, they just took to it in a big way. And what do you think about the industry now? Because obviously it's in a huge, you know, boom and it is cool again and, you know, there's more and more people involved in whiskey in terms of, like, drinking it and it's obviously gone global and people buying casks and, like, so what are your thoughts of things today? Oh, well, it depends on which bit, bit you're talking about. The practice of a lot of people of buying whiskey casks as an investment I find perfectly deplorable. I think the essence of scotch whiskey is that people should enjoy it and have a great time and it's about it's about the expansiveness of human nature and nothing could be less expansive than grubby people buying casks merely so that they can get a bit richer than they are at the moment anyway i think it's a a typical bubble a commercial bubble and i think it will eventually go bust So I think quite a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Having said that, I think developments in the Scotch whisky industry have been hugely for the better in the last 20 years or so. And I don't think we're being immodest when, when I say that a great many of the ways in which the industry has improved has been by copying the things that we were hated for doing in the 1980s. Before we sat down, you said there's a link from the Scotsman to the Scotsman Whiskey Society. So can you tell us about that? Oh, yes. Yeah. One of the things I would say about what we do is there is no hype about this. Everything we do is, everything you see, what you see is what you get with the Scotsman Whiskey Society. Nobody is plugging a line of advertising which is basically mendacious. It is simply the best distilled liquor on the planet. And if you can say that about your product, you don't actually need to say anything more. Where were we? What were we talking about? The Scotsman. So the link- oh, yes, the Scotsman. Yes. Conrad Wilson had a plum job. He was the Scotsman's food, wine and theatre correspondent. So he spent his time having nice lunches and going to the theatre, which he loved. Sorry, not theatre, music correspondent. Conrad rang me up and said, Pip, this is Conrad. What's all this? about whiskey and Leith. And I said, well, why don't you come and see? So Conrad came in, came up the stairs, came in here. So I explained the whole thing. And we were only, I think, a few months or most a year or so old by that time. But it was going like a circus. And the building works were still going on. So I explained the whole thing to him. And he said, that's great. And I gave him one or two drums, and he said, even better, this is wonderful stuff, this is as good as you say it is. Now, besides being the Scotsman's food, wine, and uh, musical correspondent, he had a bunch of his pals, all journalists on the Scotsman, and they were the Scotsman's wine-tasting team. And what they would do is, once once a month or so, they would get people to give them lots of wine for free 
and they would taste the wine and they would give it marks out of a hundred then Conrad would write it up for the Saturday Scotsman. If you look back through the paper's archives in 1983 or 84, so Conrad said, how would, how would it be if I was to bring my wine tasting team along and we try your whiskey? So I said, fine. So the guys all came along and they sat round the table here and I poured them out drams and they tasted the drams. Now, they had made practice of awarding the wines points out of 100. And the highest they had ever awarded anything was, I think, a Chateau Talbot, quite an old Chateau Talbot, of which they had given 83 out of 100. So I let them taste our first four whiskies. They were Glenfarclas, Glenlivet, Beaumore and Highland Park. The Highland Park, they awarded 99 points out of 100 on the ground that this was the best imaginable liquor and they would have given it 100, but they felt they had to keep. This was unattainable. And everything else was only one or two points behind it. And Conrad wrote it up in the Scotsman and that's what made the thing fly. As soon as that appeared, we started being inundated with with inquiries, people wanting some of this stuff. So we soon ran out of whiskey and had to bottle some more. We didn't advertise, we made a point of not advertising. My view was always, if this stuff is as good as we say it is, then we don't need to advertise. And it's still the case. And just so to bring us back to present day, how do you feel today with all these members from all around the world and they're tasting and they're going to put, you know, put it in a bottle for the other members? How does it feel? I think it's absolutely wonderful. I, I mean, the people who've run the society now are just marvellous. It's a long story, <laughs> but um, I ran the society from 1983 until 1995, and I, shall we say paid very little attention to the financial side of management. I left that to other people, and by 1995 we ran into serious financial trouble and the bank threatened to foreclose on us. I didn't do what I did without making a great many enemies, and my enemies pounced and I got chucked out. And I was pretty sore about it, as you can imagine. I lost a lot of money on it. But um, I thought, well, you know, if they don't want me, I'm not going to bother them. And I had lots of other things to do anyway. And um, so I didn't, I only came back to the society once in the following 20 years. I came up the stairs and there was a doorman because there had always been a divergence on the board of the society, there were people like me who wanted to drink really good liquor and have a lot of fun. And there were people who wanted status. Mm -hmm. And being a director of a whiskey company was a high status occupation among the sort of people who frequent golf clubs. And my enemies pounced and um, I got chucked out. And when I went back after about 10 years, I was admittedly looking scruffy. and there was a chap at the door in a uniform. And what these guys had wanted was to make it like 
a London Gentleman's Club. Now, if I'd wanted to be a, a member of a gentleman's club, I'd have joined the new club or the arts club. I'd have had no shortage of people to propose me, but I, I've always liked pubs better than that sort of club. And this chap said, who was I? And I said, well, as far as I'm aware, I'm a member here. And he said, could he see my membership card? And I said, I don't have it with me. Oh, he said, the implication being that without a card, I wouldn't get in. I said, but I, ta I can tell you what my membership number is. Oh, he said, suspiciously, what's that? And I said, one. And he was a bit taken back, uh, aback by this and went off and said, oh, I'm fetch somebody from the management and they were terribly embarrassed and it was a bit like a gentleman's club and my friend said it's not any fun anymore and it was a, a few years ago that I got a telephone call from Richard Goslin who runs the society's newsletter explaining that the society was rather different and it had changed hands and would I consider coming back to it. I said, well, I'm happy to talk to you. So he came up to Montrose, where I live, and we, we talked. And I thought he was a really nice guy. I liked him a lot, still do. And he invited me to come back, and I came back to find that it had changed out of recognition. And in fact, it, the company had been bought first by Glenmorangie and then from Glenmorangie, had been bought by people who wanted to remake it in the image in which it had been started, when it was a lot of fun and it wasn't just for old farts. <laughs> and I came and I met, and I met the people and I thought they were great, and I still do. I, I think it's wonderful. And I am in the amazingly desirable position. I'm 82, and it, I get to swan about the globe meeting people who shake my hand and tell me I'm wonderful and give me drums. <laughs> and you can't ask for much better than that. Yeah. And are you still number one? Are you still out of membership? As far as I'm aware. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose when I pop my clogs, they can give it to somebody else. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much. That's been really, really interesting. And it's great to know that the Scotsman had a, a, a part to play in it all. Oh, yes, the Scotsman was... The Scotsman was, was very much part of it. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been lovely to talk to You're you. You're very welcome. Thank you. My name is Suryakir Bonta. I'm coming from Sweden. So it's actually something very interesting that's happening. We are actually nosing a few whiskies and seeing how the nose itself doesn't determine the end characteristics of the whiskey. For the annual gathering, which is actually a selection of bottlings across the globe, we're actually trying bottlings country-wise and selecting which of those bottlings perhaps could ultimately end up being bottled in the end. It's actually cast samples which could be bottled in the end. Yeah. And how long have you been a member at the Scotch Whiskey Society? I've been a member for the past nine years. And what do you like about it? The best thing about them is that, you know, they don't add anything into the whiskey. It is as pure as you get it from the cask. There's no colour, it's not chill filtered and there's no water added. So you can decide how much water you want to add. So if you want to experience whiskey and, you know, enjoy it in the best possible way, I think you should always try and drown from the SMWS. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much.
Thanks to my guests on this episode and thanks to you too for listening. I am delighted that we're launching the Scotsman's Grand Awards with 16 category awards to recognise Scotland's flourishing dining, drinking and hospitality sector. We want to hear more about the individuals, establishments and products that make the Scottish food and drink sector what it is, so nominate them now at www.scranawards.co.uk no later than the 12th of May. Categories include Scottish Chef of the Year, Sustainability Award, Newcomer of the Year and Best Whiskey, plus many, many more. All finalists will be invited to attend a special awards ceremony on June the 19th at Platform in Glasgow. Thank you to our headline partner, Benriach Distillery, and our category sponsors, Chefworks, Scotch Whiskey Association and Glasgow Distillery, without which the event wouldn't be possible. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss an episode of Scran. Scran is a logical podcast that's co-produced and hosted by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Kelly Crichton.